Morning. Any of you ever see an old Disney movie called Jungle to Jungle, 1977? Consider yourselves blessed. This is not Oscar material by any stretch of the imagination. Tim Allen plays a stockbroker who marries a cultural anthropologist who leaves him to go study and work with an indigenous tribe in the Amazon basin in South America. Many years later, he discovers that he has a 13-year-old son living in the jungles of South America. His son, an American citizen who knows nothing about his father, knows nothing about life in the United States. And of course, the son comes to pay a visit to dear old dad in New York City. And what supposedly ensues is comedy. Sound bad to you? It is. This is worse. Imagine what it would be like to live your life before the face of God, either denying that he exists or knowing nothing at all about who he is. The result isn't comedy, it's disaster. As the Apostle Paul himself wrote in his introduction to the letters to the Romans, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And when he wrote that, he wasn't just talking about the scores of unbelievers around the world. He was talking about himself. Ever since Easter, you've been doing a series here on the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to take a look at perhaps the most dramatic one of all, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Caleb's going to read it for us. So this is Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from the heavens shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Saul may have been most unlikely candidate for conversion to the gospel alive in the first century. You ever hear anyone say, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person? By any human standard, Paul was a really good person. You ever hear anyone say, uh, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart? Paul was a devoted, passionate believer. In Philippians chapter 3, he describes his own opinion of himself before this encounter in Acts chapter 9 like this. I was circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was devoted. He was disciplined. He thought himself wise, but he was a fool. Let me explain to you why. Uh, we lived in Massachusetts for four years in an old 200-year-old house with a big pond out in the backyard. All summer, the only thing that pond produced was mosquitoes. So we looked forward to the cold weather every fall, not only to kill the mosquitoes, but to freeze the pond over so that we could go ice skating. Now, imagine two skaters. One confidently goes out onto the ice when it's only a half an inch thick, thinking, it'll hold me up. I don't weigh that much. I'm sure it's going to be okay. I did this last year and got away with it. Never fear. The second skater waits until the ice is 10 inches thick and is still full of doubts and fears. I mean, is 10 inches really enough? I mean, I've gained about 10 pounds this time, this time last year. What if I fall? What if I break through in the end? Which one breaks through the ice and drowns? It's the first one because it's not your faith that saves you. It's not how much you believe. It's the ice, what the object of your faith is. And according to the Scriptures, it doesn't take much faith to save you. Faith like the size of a seed of mustard is enough if the object of your faith is true. Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection on your behalf, of course, this begs a question, doesn't it? How could anybody possibly know the truth? How could anybody possibly know the correct object of faith? Indeed, it is an article of faith of our culture that nobody can know in the end. So, when we struggle with our doubts and fears, when I struggle with my doubts and fears, and when I read passages like this in Acts chapter 9, I think, must be nice. Have an experience like this and all of your doubts and worries disappear. Jesus talks to you. And then it's clear sailing from there on out. And stuff like this seemed to happen to Paul all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he writes, I know a man in Christ himself who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven and he third heard things that cannot be told which man may not write. And I read stuff like this and I think, good for you. How wonderful. It's never happened to me. You understand my frustration? I want to remind you this morning of what I remind myself when I'm frustrated. That the evidence of Jesus' resurrection that was available to Paul wasn't overwhelming. 
and the evidence of his resurrection that is available to us is not underwhelming either. Easy to read texts like chapter 9 and get the wrong impression. Verse 1, Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the church. And then verse 4, Jesus knocks him flat. Paul was headed this way until Jesus stopped him, picked him up, turned him around, and set him going this way. But that's way too simple. Because what we see here in Acts chapter 9 is the end result of a long process. Jesus had been working on Paul long before he spoke to him on the Damascus Road. Paul tells the story of his conversion three times in the book of Acts. First time here in chapter 9. The second in Acts 24 when he is on trial before the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea. And last in Acts chapter 26 when he's on trial before King Agrippa. And in each one of those tellings, he gives more details. And one of the most interesting shows up in chapter 26 when Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what a goad is? <laughs> uh, it's a sharpened stick that they used to use to drive oxen. They would whack them on one side, whack them on the other, and jab them in the rear end with it. What were the goads that Jesus had been sticking Paul with before he actually met him on the Damascus Road? I can see two in the Scriptures. The first is Saul's own conscience. In the Philippians chapter 3 passage that I read a little while ago, Paul says that he was once proud. He was once confident of his own righteousness. He said, I was blameless before the law. But something happened to change that. In Romans chapter 7, verse 9, he said, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang up to life, and I died. You understand what he means there? Paul's saying that he had begun to doubt his own goodness. He would begin to wonder, am I really the man that I think that I am? And I don't know why, but <laughs> if he's like most of us, I imagine it's because of his struggles with sin, right? That was the first code. The second was the martyrdom of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is on trial before the Jewish authorities for his faith, and he preaches one of the most amazing sermons ever delivered. He starts with God's dealing with his people in the Old Testament, works all the way through, and ends with a vision of heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It is an incredible sermon. If you haven't read it recently, please take the time to do so. Luke who records this in Acts chapter 7, was not present when the sermon was preached. And the question is, where did Luke get the sermon notes? It's possible he got them directly from the Holy Spirit, but I think it's more likely that he got them from Saul, who was present 
and who remembered them vividly because he couldn't forget them. You see, the righteousness that had eluded Paul, Stephen had found in Jesus. And it strengthened him enough that he was not only able to face death, he was able to do so praying that God would forgive those who were killing him. So, in Paul's mind, Stephen had to die, not just because he was guilty of blasphemy in Paul's opinion, but because he and every other follower of Jesus was a threat to Paul. They were a threat to the way that he looked at himself. You understand? God had been dealing with Saul a long time before this encounter in Acts chapter 9. So, Saul wasn't overwhelmed by the reality of the resurrected Jesus. And you and I aren't underwhelmed by it either. The same Luke who writes Acts also writes the gospel according to Luke. And in Luke chapter 16, he tells a story that Jesus tells. A rich man, nameless, dies and goes to hell. A poor man, Lazarus, dies and is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And there, the rich man pleads with Abraham like this. He says, I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You and I not only have Moses and the prophets and the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit and the grace of God daily at work in our own lives. And they are a good foundation for faith. And on that foundation, Jesus calls each one of us, just as he called Paul, to follow him. And when he calls us, it isn't like a bolt of lightning out of a clear sky. It's always the end of a long process. Saul had begun to doubt that he was the person that he thought he was. Worse than this, he had begun to wonder if God was the person that he thought he was, too. Did I really know who God is? So when Jesus speaks to him, he doesn't answer in the words of Psalm 63, O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh fasts for you as in a dry and weary land in which there is no, God, no, no water. Instead, he says, Who are you, Lord? 
And at first glance, Jesus' answer in verse 5 seems a little bit puzzling. He says, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. Now, stop and think of it for a moment. Saul had nothing to do with the crucifixion. He was persecuting Christians, but he didn't do anything to Jesus at all. Why would Jesus say this? It's a question that Paul himself answers later in his letter to the Galatians. He says this in chapter 2. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You understand what he's saying? Putting your faith in Jesus makes you one with Christ. Not that you cease to exist as an individual, but when God looks at you, when he looks at me, he no longer sees just an old guy still struggling with his sin. He sees Jesus Christ because I am robed in his righteousness. Back in the 18th century, William Holland was a friend of John and Charles Wesley. The Wesley brothers wrote a lot of hymns that we still sing. Uh, Charles wrote a song called Amazing Love, How Can It Be? Y'all know that one? Yeah. Holland was like Paul. He was a man who was struggling with his own sinfulness. And one evening, he heard Charles Wesley read from the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And then he himself responded like this. What? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. But only accept him who of God is made unto us to be wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe my great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so full of peace and love, I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw my Savior. What happened to Holland is what happens to everyone who becomes a believer. No, we do not automatically become righteous in and of ourselves. We don't automatically know what's right and do it and deny everything that's wrong. But we do become one with Christ in faith, and Christ becomes our righteousness. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. That's why Jesus asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute God's people, you are persecuting Christ. It's also how Ananias, when he visits Paul a little later in this same chapter, calls him Brother Saul. The bad news of the gospel is that we're way worse than we imagine. We aren't just people who are pretty good and just make a few mistakes once in a while. We are cosmic disasters 
And the only hope for our redemption is if Jesus, the second person of the the Trinity, dies for us. That's the bad news. The good news is Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. And when we come to him in faith, when we put on Christ, we become far better than you could ever imagine possible. In just a little while, we're going to celebrate it around the Lord's table once again. But before we do, let's pray together. Dear Lord, how quickly Easter passes for us. How quickly we forget Jesus' resurrection and what it means for us. I pray, remind us again each moment that he died for us to pay for our sins and that in rising he conquered death and one day soon so will we. Teach us again to put on Christ, to be robed in his righteousness and renewed in his likeness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.